Our passage for today comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. We're going to be reading chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. We're going to be skipping around a little bit in 1 Samuel between chapters 13 and 16, but it felt like this was the passage we should read today, and so focus on it a little bit. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or pull them up on your phone, we'll also have them on the slides up here. And uh, we continue in our sermon series on the life of David, and the Lord looks at the heart. So that's our focus as we keep going through, uh, through the summer looking at the life of David. So let's pray before we read this morning. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, as we come before you on this Pentecost Sunday, the day that we celebrate the coming of your Holy Spirit into your church, Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit has inspired and authored these words of Scripture, and that your Holy Spirit still speaks to us through these words. So we ask today that you would bless to us this reading of your Holy Word, and that you would apply it to our hearts and minds. Speak to us once again this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting uh, at verse 1 and reading through verse 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had him brought in. And he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, this week I went on one of those walking tours around Old Town Prague. Has anybody been on one of those walking tours before around Old Town Prague? 
in this whole church, three people have been on one of those walking tours around Prague. So we went, I went on this walking tour of Old Town Prague. There was a couple that was in town from the United States, and they had a particular interest in the religious history of Prague, uh, the Reformation history of Prague, and they invited me to, to join along with them. And so I went uh, with them, met them down there in Old Town, and this tour had a particular focus on Jan Hus. Uh, in the Reformation and what uh, the history of the Reformation was here in the Czech Republic. And one of the things that our tour guide reminded us of, the background uh, behind all that was going on, in just, not just in the Czech Republic, but in Europe in general, was that leading up to this time, there was a period in Europe's history where there were two popes. There were two popes. Uh, One had moved to France and was living in Avignon, and then there was another one. They elected another pope in Rome, and then somewhere along the line, a third pope came along, and they had three popes in the Catholic Church. And I don't know all of the story behind of all this, but what the the tour guide was reminding us of was all of sort of the political chaos that came with this, that this confused members of the church, it confused governments, there was all of this political back and forth and manipulation, and these things that were happening behind the scenes because this was going on. And it created sort of an unstable situation in Europe at the time, which eventually led to sort of Jan Hus and the Reformation. Now, the reason I share all of that is because uh, we are in this book of 1 Samuel. Uh, We've entered a time where there are two kings in Israel. There are two kings in Israel. And for the rest of our time, at least in the book of 1 Samuel, this is the backdrop between everything else that is happening. Because last week we saw that Saul was anointed as king. But this week we see that God has rejected Saul as king and is now anointing David as king, even as a boy. But even though God has rejected Saul as king, Saul still sits on the throne and is still acting as king. And it's quite some time before David actually moves into the position of being king. And it's sort of this confusing time in the history of Israel where people are, you see the political machinations that go on and who's really in power, uh, how does this affect friendship? like David and Jonathan, when Jonathan's the son of Saul. And this is what we're going to be looking at over the next uh, couple weeks and months, is these two kings. And what are we supposed to do with that? What does it mean that God rejects one king and brings in another, and yet the first king, whom God has rejected, stays on the throne? It creates an interesting situation, as you might imagine. This is the situation that Israel is in at this point. David's been anointed king. He's the one that God has chosen to lead Israel, uh, but he doesn't inhabit the role yet. And in fact, his anointing isn't even widely publicized at all. It's this small private ceremony, but it would change the course of Israel's history. So now we have two kings in Israel, and while at at first this fact is pretty inconspicuous, uh, we get to observe the decline of one king and the ascent of the other and all of the drama and the intrigue that surrounds it. So what happened? What happened? Why does God reject Saul as king? And this is part of what we're going to look at today. We do get to David, which is great. Uh, We've now been introduced to all of the three main characters in the book of 1 Samuel. We have Samuel, the great prophet that God has raised up to bring his word again to Israel. We have Saul, who is tall and handsome, and he's Israel's first king. And now we have David who is this this young boy. He's the youngest of eight brothers, and he's out shepherding the sheep. And he's the one to become Israel's greatest king. 
And at this point, we've met all of these three characters, the main characters in 1 Samuel, and it's through their relationships with each other, these men have with each other, that all of the excitement and the drama and the conflict of this book plays out. But then, of course, we also have the Lord, who is really the main character of this story and of all of Scripture. And we see God actively at work in the book of 1 Samuel. And this is where we need to pay the most attention. What is it that God is up to in the narrative? What is he saying and what is he doing? These are the things that really matter as we read through the scriptures. The theme of these sermons is the life of David, but it's from David's relationship with the Lord that we're going to get any of our takeaways or learn any lessons that we want to take home with us. Our passage today introduces us to David for the first time, which is exciting. It's taken us a little while to get here. This is the moment that we've been waiting for over the last couple weeks. I've been waiting for it. I don't know if you've been waiting for it, but we've been waiting to meet David. But before we get to David and his story and his anointing as king, we're going to look at Saul and his kingship a little bit, which we just touched on last week, and the reasons that God rejected him as king. When we first met Saul, he kind of comes out of nowhere And the Israelites demand a king, and then all of a sudden, here's Saul, the son of Kish. And all we're really told about him is that he is tall, tall, a head taller than anybody else in all of Israel, and he's more handsome than anyone that you could possibly imagine. And he's out looking for his father's donkeys when we meet him. Uh, And then he is made king. God says to Samuel, this is the one that I have chosen. And for a while, and Saul was on the throne, I think, for 42 years is what we're told. And for a while, Saul seemed to do pretty well as king. And he was especially successful at leading Israel into battle. And they defeated many of their enemies under Saul and especially the Philistines. He kind of had their number. They were uh, the main rivals of Israel at the time. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, it says this about Saul as a successful military leader. It says, after Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly, and he defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. And if you remember from what we were looking at last week, when the Israelites demanded a king, this is exactly what they wanted. They wanted a king who was going to go out in front of them and lead them into battle. Someone who they could look to when they were fighting against their enemies, uh, and they could point to and they could trust and follow. And so Saul is fulfilling what it is that they wanted when they asked for a king. But as his reign went on, His character flaws and his limitations as king, they start to show up more and more. And I don't say that as any sort of condemnation on Saul. Anybody who's in leadership for a long amount of time, their flaws are going to start to come forward and they're going to show up. And so this is just part of of being a human who's given lots of leadership responsibility. But with Saul, what gets him into trouble in particular is his disobedience of the Lord's commands. And there are two specific instances Uh, where Saul's disobedience leads to his rejection as king. And the first instance occurs in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, when Israel is facing the Philistines in battle, or they're about to face the Philistines in battle, and things were not looking good for the Israelites at this point. And, and they're waiting for Samuel to come and to offer the sacrifice to God. But Samuel doesn't show up on time. And so they keep waiting, they wait, and finally Saul says, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself. 
I'm going to offer the sacrifice myself and seek favor from the Lord instead of waiting for Samuel the prophet to arrive and do it. And that is what Samuel had instructed him to do, to wait until he got there to offer the sacrifice. But Saul said, you know what? Samuel's late. I'm just going to do it myself. This is the first instance where Saul's disobedience of the Lord gets him in trouble. And the second occurs in chapter 15. Uh, Samuel had instructed Saul from the Lord to destroy everything that was uh, in their battle with the Amalekites, which Saul did not do. And you can read that chapter yourself. You'll see all the details of it. We're not going to go all into it now. But what you need to know is that Saul did not follow the Lord's instructions. He did not destroy everything in that battle. And in both of these situations, what we see is that instead of following the Lord's instructions, Saul took matters into his own hands. Saul thought that he knew better than what the Lord had instructed him to do. And he turned to his own way rather than the Lord's, which is always going to get you in trouble. Now, on some level, I think it's easy to sympathize with Saul. It doesn't seem like what he did was quite so bad, and his explanations seem to make sense. He he was trying to honor the Lord, either by seeking God's favor before battle, by offering the sacrifice, or, or by saving some of what belonged to the Amalekites in order to sacrifice it to God later. This was his explanation for what he's doing. I mean... I mean, maybe Saul didn't do these things exactly the way he was supposed to do, but it seemed like he had God in mind on some level when he was making these decisions. And anyway, shouldn't there be some grace? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't there be grace to cover mistakes like these anyway? We would maybe expect that from God. And yes, that we might ask for that, but kings are supposed to lead their people in obedience to God's word. The kings of Israel are supposed to lead their people in obedience to God's word. And so when they're being disobedient themselves, they can't lead the people to do the same thing. And there are a few things that we've been clued in on in chapter 15 that show us that that maybe Saul's motives weren't quite as innocent as he would have had Samuel believe as well. When Saul was confronted with his disobedience uh, by Samuel, he initially denies it. When Samuel shows up, he said, I did obey the Lord. I did everything the Lord told me. And when Saul confronts him and says, I mean, excuse me, Samuel confronts him and says, no, you you didn't do exactly what he said. Well, then he starts to uh, rationalize it and to justify his decisions. And he says, well, if I didn't fully obey the Lord's command, it was really for the Lord's sake. I mean, I did this with the Lord in mind. There was a good reason that I didn't destroy everything. And then when Samuel responds even more strongly and clearly that he had been disobedient, Saul changes his tune and he admits his wrongdoing. But then he starts to try and shift the blame onto his men. He says, well, they they made me do it. My men wanted to do it this way and, and I listened to them. They are the ones who forced me to do it. It's their fault. It reminds me of the story uh, of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 when God confronts Adam about eating the apple or eating the fruit. And he says, the woman that you gave me, she's the one. (laughs) She made me do it. Uh, We often do this, right? We look for other people to blame for our sin. It's not my fault. They made me do it. And in all of this, what starts to come to the surface is the reality that what Saul cares about the most is the outward appearance of things, especially when it comes to himself and to his own status and his own reputation. Saul wants to be held in high regard by the people around him, and so he's doing things in order for that to happen. 
And that priority has started to supersede his obedience to the Lord. When Samuel comes along looking for Saul at the beginning of chapter 15 to confront him, he's told that Saul had gone up to Carmel to set up a monument in his own honor. Anyone setting up a monument in their own honor cares a lot about how they are going to be perceived by other people and how they are to be remembered. And maybe, maybe to an unhealthy extent, if that's what they're doing. When I erect the statue to myself in front of this building, you guys can question whether I should be your pastor anymore, okay? When Saul admits wrongdoing, he says it's because his men insisted on not destroying everything, and he was afraid to go against them. He cares more about their opinion of him than he does the Lord's. And then even after hearing God's judgment on his rule, when Samuel says, God has rejected you as king, Saul begs Samuel to go with him, to honor him before the elders of all Israel. He doesn't want to lose his status and his reputation in that way. Saul's main concern in each of these cases is how he is coming across to people, how he is the one or how he is being perceived to others. Again, Saul's concern is with the outward appearance of things. Even the sacrifices that he is planning to make are criticized by Samuel, who says to him this in verses 22 and 23 of verse 15. He says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he does in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel is is leaving no doubt for Saul about the nature and the seriousness of his transgression and of what the consequences will be for him. Samuel isn't trying to discourage sacrifice in general or, or any of the other religious rituals. He's saying these, he's not, Samuel's not saying these things don't matter, don't do them anymore. What he's condemning from Saul and warning others against is allowing them to become empty rituals. Things that you do just because you are supposed to do them. Things that you do because you want other people to think that you are being faithful to the Lord. But there's no content in them, and the meaning behind them has been lost. Samuel's saying, make the sacrifices good, but obedience to the Lord's commands is the more important piece of what's going on here. And this is where a person's heart is going to be reflected. David plays with these same ideas in his well-known confession in Psalm 51, where he says, uh, sacrifice is not what pleases you, but a broken and contrite heart. We'll get that to that when we get to that story later. But we see already the contrast between Saul and David and the responses to their sin when they're called out on them. For Saul, the sacrifices and the other religious practices, they become another way of keeping up appearances. Not only am I a great warrior, but I'm also religiously devout. What more could you ask for from the king of Israel? It's what Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is talking about in his book in chapter 29, verse 13. He says, these people come near me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. And Jesus quotes this verse in in the Gospel of Matthew, showing that this is an ongoing problem for God's people, this empty sort of worship. If I go through the motions, that's going to be what pleases God. 
When all the time, what God is saying is that it's your heart that I want. Ultimately, what Saul chose was to listen and to obey the voice of the people out of fear of them, uh, which is uh, the backward way of doing things for those who follow the Lord. Certainly for the king of Israel, they should be listening to the Lord first and foremost. Saul's role was to listen to God's voice, to obey in reverent fear of the Lord. And Saul had gotten him his priorities mixed up, and it cost him dearly because of it. I like what Eugene Peterson says reflecting on this story. He says, Saul was never an out-and-out rebel against God. He always did most of what God commanded. Only on a few seemingly minor occasions did he substitute his own will for God's. And even then, he had plausible, even pious reasons for them. Most disobedience is like that. Not absolute defiance, but a nibbling away at the edges of God's authority. There's real truth in what Peterson is saying and that it's worth us paying attention to as God's people. It's easy to think of sin or the the real sin as the big egregious offenses that we do or that other people do and to overlook all of the small ways in our lives that we take matters into our own hands or that we go our own way. All of the small compromises that we make with our integrity which nibble away at God's authority in our lives. I love that image, a nibbling away at God's authority in our lives. It just happens small, a little bit at a time, slowly day by day. And then we deny it or we justify it or we blame others for it when we're called out on it. And outwardly in our lives, everything looks fine because we're going through the motions. We're going to church. We're in our small groups. We're going to Bible studies. We say, I'm going to pray for you, all of these different things. But inwardly, perhaps, our hearts are far from God. And this is why it's important for us not to neglect our relationship with the Lord. Why we should continue to seek him in prayer and to ask him to shine his light into our lives and to reveal to us anywhere that sin might be getting a foothold on us. If our desire is to have hearts that are inclined to the Lord, then the best thing that we can do is to stay close to him and be on our guard against the sin that so easily entangles us. Saul became the victim of his own compromises in service to his own status and his own reputation, and so the Lord rejected him as the king of his people. So it was after this happened, after this big confrontation that Samuel had with Saul, where he says, the Lord has rejected you as king, that God comes to Samuel and he says, I want you to go to Bethlehem and to anoint the person that I am going to show you as the next king of Israel. And I don't know if you noticed it when we were reading the passage, but everybody is a little bit nervous as this is going on. Samuel is nervous because he thinks if Saul gets word of this, then his life will be in danger. This is a seditious act that he's doing, making another king when there's already a king. Uh, And then the people of the town are nervous because the holy man has come for a visit. Uh, It reminds me a little bit, maybe not quite as much at stake, but it reminds me a little bit of when I was growing up in in elementary school or middle school, and the principal or the headmaster would show up in your class unannounced, right? They just sort of knock on the door, they come in, they stand in the back, they're observing what's going on, and you think, who's in trouble? (laughs) Something's going on here, and we're going to get called out for it. And everybody's on their best behavior all of a sudden. Nobody's talking anymore. 
And we're told that the Bethlehem elders were trembling because Samuel had showed up. If God's prophet is here, something big is going on, and I hope it's not that we are in trouble. And so they come out and they say, do you come in peace? (laughs) And he says, yes, in peace. I've come to make sacrifices. And so he invites them all to come and make this sacrifice together. And he uses that as his opportunity to invite Jesse and his sons to come along so that he can take a look at them and see them and anoint one as king. And Eugene Peterson has a great description of all this. He kind of describes it as, you know, Samuel standing there and the, and the sons of Jesse just come in one by one and they each have a name and he sort of sizes them all up, right? And yet he's waiting to hear from the Lord, which one is king? The first brother he sees is Eliab and like Saul, he looks like a king. And we see at this point that Samuel, even the prophet, even God's man, also looks at the outward appearance to some degree. Samuel takes one look at Eliab and he says, surely this is the one. This must be the king. He looks the part. But it's in response to Samuel's evaluation of Eliab that God gives us our theme verse, telling him, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, the prophet Isaiah speaks to this in in chapter 55 of his book. He puts it a little bit different way where he says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Both of these verses tell us the same thing, that though we may be created in God's image, though we may have a relationship with the Lord, God's knowledge and wisdom are infinitely greater than our own. Only God knows what's truly inside a person and what is in their hearts, including our own. And he alone knows what is going on inside of us. And only God knows what he is up to in the world. And he might let us in on it sometimes here and there, But if we use our worldly wisdom and try to discern or judge what God is doing, then we will be heading down the wrong track much of the time. These are truths that call us to live by faith, to put our trust in the Lord, uh, sometimes even when we don't fully understand, because God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. We look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's exactly what we see happening with David here. David is the eighth son, the eighth of all of these brothers, and he is the youngest. He is the one left to tend the sheep while all of the rest of the town gathers and they're making sacrifices with Samuel. He is the one that is so insignificant that his father has to be asked if he has any more sons before thinking to call David up. When I read this passage, I wonder if there are any youngest children that can sympathize with what David might have been feeling, right, in this case. Uh, It's not that his family didn't like him. It's just that they figured this can't be the one that Samuel is looking for. He says, do you have any more kids? Oh, yeah, there is the one out there tending the sheep. Let's let's call him in, too. Samuel says, we're not sitting down until he gets here, all right? We need to hurry up and get this going. David is considered to be so insignificant by his own family that, that surely, surely this isn't the one that Samuel's looking for. I don't know if you realize this, but we don't even learn his name until the very last verse of that chapter. That's when we first hear the name David stead. 
But then here he is, anointed as the king of Israel. It, it doesn't make sense, at least not to our human sensibilities. But God's ways are not our ways. And God looked at David, this young shepherd boy from a big family in a small village, and he discerned there somebody whose heart was inclined towards him, someone who lived out of faith and out of obedience, and so God made him the king. And in making David the king of Israel, we see an example of a pattern that runs throughout Scripture where God takes the humble and lowly things of the world and elevates them. And he takes the powerful and mighty things of the world and humbles them. This young shepherd boy, not even worth consideration by Samuel, as far as his family was concerned, has been made king. Hannah, Samuel's mother, alludes to this idea in her prayer at the beginning of 1 Samuel about how uh, high things are made low and low things are brought high. But we see it even more explicitly by Jesus' mother Mary in her prayer, which we call the Magnificat. In Luke chapter 1, she says this, He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. This is so often how it works in God's economy of things. God isn't interested in our status, whether it's low or high by the world's standards, or or if he's interested in it, it doesn't hold any sway with him. This is not how God judges us. God wants to turn all of that on its head, that way of understanding the world. And we see so much of that play out in Jesus' life and ministry with the people he spent time with, the people that he affirmed, the people that he challenged that the low were brought high, and the high were brought low. God calls who he calls, and God uses whom he uses, even you and me, my friends. And what he wants from us most of all are surrendered hearts and surrendered lives. Two final thoughts from this passage that I, I think are important for us to have in mind as we look more and more at David and his kingship over this summer. The first is this, David is a shepherd. He cares for the sheep. And in one way, this is evidence of the last point that we just made, that God takes the humble things and people of the world and he elevates them. As occupations go, it's pretty far from being a king to be a shepherd. It wasn't a job that was held in high regard. And there's a reason that David, as the youngest son, is out there doing it. He's, he's putting in his time. Probably his brothers all had to do it at some point as well. But in scripture, kingship is often related to being a shepherd. For the king of Israel, their call is to care for God's people, God's sheep, to guide them and to direct them, to protect them, to provide for them, to nourish them. We saw this in our, in our verse from Deuteronomy last week that outlined all of the expectations for the kings of Israel. And this will be David's main job when he actually inhabits the call that God has placed on him, when he actually becomes king. 
It's going to be his job to care for God's people. Even for the king, they are under God's authority, and they are called to obey him above all else. Now, David doesn't do this perfectly either, and we're going to see that time and time again, but we'll see that his heart and his faith are in a different place than Saul's, even in his lowest points. And all of this, of course, points us to Jesus, who picks up on this shepherd imagery and uses it to describe himself in John chapter 10. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not, know, uh, does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Our true and perfect king says, I am the good shepherd. And this is what a good king does for his people. He lays down his life for them. And it's what Christ did for us. Going to the cross for our sakes so that we might be saved. Whatever good we see in David over these next months, let it point beyond himself, the first shepherd king, to our good shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the second point is this that I'd like for us to keep in mind. It's from our last verse from today. It says, From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And as today is Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar, it's the day we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the early church. Uh, We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as being present with God's people from that day forward, the day of Pentecost forward. But the Spirit of the Lord was not absent in the Old Testament, and we see that God's presence was with David in a powerful way, enabling him, equipping him, encouraging him to carry out God's call in his life. In his case, that call was to be the king of Israel, and David lived and reigned in the power of the Holy Spirit. But since the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is present in all of us who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. God's presence is powerfully upon us too, enabling and encouraging and equipping us to carry out God's call in our lives, whatever that call may be. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, again, you are the only one who knows our hearts. Lord, we pray today that each one of us would have hearts that are inclined towards you, that you might look at each one of us and say that that we are men and women after your own heart. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work in each one of us, changing our hearts so that we might surrender them to you and be your faithful people. Lord, help us, as always, to see the places where we need to repent, the places where sin is getting a foothold in our lives, Help us to turn away. Lord, help us to stay close to you and follow you. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.